In a world where it seems totally normal to listen to a podcast about the Toronto Argonauts, it's the X's and Argos podcast. Welcome to the X's and Argos 2021 postseason podcast featuring the X's and Argos Awards Spectacular. It's all brought to you by Funny Bone Broth. My name is Ben Grant, joined as always by JB. In this episode of the X's and Argos podcast, we've got news and notes. We've got a Grey Cup wrap-up. We've got a message to the commissioner and also the league office. And we have got our much-anticipated X's and Argos season awards. Let's get it started. JB, news and notes this week. Let's start with Chris Jones. So stories coming in that the Edmonton Elks have reached out to Chris Jones. Is is he gone? Are the Argos going to find a way to bring him back? How do you read that situation? Yeah, he's gone. Um, <laughs> That's moving uh, along. No, yeah, I, I, there's no. I mean, he he's going to get to be the head honcho in Edmonton. He's going to be coach and general manager. Uh, Toronto is not going to offer him that. He's not going to be. I heard somebody, somebody suggest that he might be like player personnel slash defensive coordinator, and like not, <laughs> what, that that's not a thing. No, he's gonna go. I mean, look, he 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 joined the Argos to get back in the loop, and the Edmonton job is is the full package for him. Yeah, I, he's 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 Gonzo. Yeah, I agree. I don't think there's any way he stays. And like you're saying, you can't combo a job like that, not only because it, it just doesn't make sense in terms of what your actual job is, but then you're kind of like outranking the head coach. No, you, no, you can't be like the coordinator that makes personnel decisions and the head coach doesn't. So, yeah, I don't see any way that happens. But yeah, Chris Jones, I, you know, I think he was great in the time that that he was here. I never expected this to be a long-term arrangement. Chris Jones has a reputation for moving around and you know I I thought he was everything we were looking for at that point in the season like to go out and try and find someone to take over your defense at that stage of the season uh, he was the only guy for the job we've said that many times he came in I thought he performed very well and uh, yeah wish him the best out, uh, out in Edmonton the other bit of news that I want to get into is uh, so today, uh, VP player personnel, uh, John Murphy was, uh, released by the Toronto Argonauts. And there's two things that I want to talk about with this story. If you haven't read it yet, JC Abbott has a really nice article on three down nation that it pretty much is everything that I feel about this situation, because I really think there was a missed opportunity here by the CFL and by the Argonauts. And I want to divide this story into two because we haven't had a chance to really talk about this yet. It was just sort of breaking the last time we recorded, which was post-game uh, following the loss to the Hamilton Tiger Cats. So um, there are various videos out there. There are stories that go with videos, but uh, essentially John Murphy got into uh, a, a, a physical confrontation and a verbal confrontation. I believe it was the verbal confrontation that resulted in John Murphy being released uh, from his position with the Argonauts. It's alleged that he used a homophobic slur in that verbal confrontation. And I want to talk about what was missed here. The league and the Argos as part of the league have said a lot over the last few years about how they're not going to be tolerant uh, with regards to any disrespect uh, regarding the LGBTQ community. 
and they have gone out of their way to talk about pride and to talk about the support of the LGBTQ community. And this was a real moment leading up to Grey Cup week where a story like this, it should not be buried. If this is what is being alleged, if we're talking about homophobic slurs that are being thrown out, this needs a statement from the league. This is a moment where the league has to say, or the Argos have to say, or both have to say, they have to come out and say, you know, we we condemn the use of, of this language and this does not represent the Toronto Argonauts, does not represent the CFL, this is not what we believe. And, and instead, it's silenced. And to me, that's almost like saying, yeah, we, you know, we care, we say it's important, but not important enough to be news on Grey Cup week. Let's not bring any of that into Grey Cup week. And to me, that's just such a, a disrespectful and disappointing lack of response here. And instead, it's a brief statement that's that's thrown out on Monday. And I get that there are probably legal implications and everyone being very careful about using the word allegedly. But even just the accusation, I don't think you have to say uh, you don't have to make accusations. You just have to talk about the use of homophobic slurs and how they have no place here. And I don't think that's something that gets buried, Grey Cup week or not. No, I mean, we, I mean, we talked, you know, we talked um, last June about about the CFL and the how it's fine, but but they're still really far behind the NFL, uh, which I think is really unfortunate in terms of making like honest real commitment to to the you know to the 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 fight for equality and the fight against homophobia um in professional sports i think it's okay what the cfl has done but a lot of times it definitely feels very close to corporate rainbow washing and i think that they should be highly attuned especially as we probably will talk a little later about getting a younger audience i think that they need to be highly attuned to this. I mean, you know, do I wish the CFL would do it because it's the right thing? Of course. But I mean, also, this is, you know, where society is heading. And if you are not out in front and, and people can, um, you know, feel whether it's sincere or whether it's just kind of a one-off thing. And I think it's a missed opportunity by the Argos and a missed opportunity by the league to not really embrace uh the LGBTQ uh, community, and and really embrace the idea of, of pride and equality. I think that's that's a huge area, much more important than should we have four downs or not. Uh, I think that's a huge area that they need to aggressively start uh, engaging with. The other side of the story, and it's it's an entirely separate issue, and that's why I wanted to talk about these things individually, the other side is the violence part of this. And this I feel very differently about because in my view, I want to talk a little bit about fan behavior and how lucky we are in the CFL to have the access that we have as fans to these CFL players. I love the fact that my kids can be there high-fiving the Argos as they come out. They, they love that. It's such an amazing experience for them. We talk about ways to engage younger fans and things like that. You know, my kids just go crazy for stuff like that. To them, that's way more important than the game, be able to high-five a player as they come out. Uh, that's awesome. But you can't have that stuff if the behavior of fans is not going to allow for it. So in my mind, as a fan, if you want to boo 
the other team as they come out of the tunnel, I fine, great, do that as loud as you want. Uh, an opposing player gestures toward your sideline and you want to boo them, fantastic, do that. I think that's part of sports. Cheer your team, boo the other team, awesome. Where it stops is what we saw in these videos, you know, leading up to this incident that we've referred to, is not just booing, not just taunting, not just calling, but throwing beverages, throwing beverage containers on players, that you've now crossed the line. You're now beyond what fan expectation is. And there needed to be, in that situation, there needed to be police at that point. Uh, more than just more than just ushers, more than just security personnel, you need to have police officers on hand for a situation like that. Because now you're putting players in a situation where they feel threatened. You're putting players, you're putting management, you're putting anyone that's walking out there trying to get to the dressing room into a situation that they're not comfortable in. And then you add to that fans climbing over barriers. Well, now that's a whole different story altogether. Fans that go onto the field, fans that climb over barriers, you cannot blame players, management, whoever, for getting involved in a physical altercation when they cross that threshold. Fans have absolutely no business on the field like that, jumping over a barrier like that, or, and this is, it, it's not the same level, but it's still unacceptable, throwing anything at a player. And I think as soon as you do that, you have crossed the line and you can't blame players for standing up for themselves. You can't blame players for getting into physical altercations at that stage. The takeaway from the exit is that there need to be more officers on hand. And it's one or the other. Either we lose the access to the players that we have now, and there's a tunnel and players are shuttled to the tunnel and that's it, you don't see them. Or there have to be more police officers on hand so that situations like this don't arise. JB, the last story I want to get to was a report from PFT uh, about McLeod Bethel Thompson, which was not accurate. And I know McLeod tweeted about this. He was pretty upset by this allegation that was simply not correct. And I wanted to address it here just to sort of clear his name. Now, McLeod Bethel Thompson, after the game, uh, he shoved a camera away uh, that was uh, coming in close to get a, a shot of him. He apologized for this. That's not something that he should have done. And he apologized for that immediately after the incident. But it was reported by PFT that he was in a scuffle with a photographer. And that is not what happened. That's not the same thing as shoving a camera out of the way. And again, I don't think you should shove a camera out of the way, but that's a that's a whole different league from getting into a scuffle with a photographer. And I think that's just PFT seeing the other story that we've already talked about, sort of uh, jumbling them both together and then painting McLeod Bethel Thompson with the same brush. And so I just wanted to take the opportunity in the, uh, the platform that we have here to say that is not what happened. And if you heard that McLeod Bethel Thompson was, you know, in a, in a fight with a photographer, uh, that's not what occurred. So uh, we can clear that up. JB, let's get to our last news and notes. And we'll use this as a bit of a teaser for our next episode, which is going to come after a bit of a hiatus. We go on break for a couple months now. Uh, you will hear from us again in February after this episode. But some of the things that uh, we're going to be talking about in February is the free agent frenzy. That's going to be most of our focus. And this week, we're starting to gather and look at some of these uh, free agents from the Argos. Now, it's not nearly as bad in Toronto as it is with a lot of other teams. Toronto's actually keeping a lot of starters around. But there's some key positions where we want to start thinking about 
who do we as Argos fans want in these roles? And the big one's going to be quarterback. The Argos are not going to have any of their main quarterbacks under contract. Antonio Pipkin, McLeod Bethel-Thompson uh, will be free agents as of the start of February. And it's not that there are a ton of free agent quarterbacks coming to market, at least among the consistent starters. You've got Zach Caleros, who will be paid $5 billion, I'm sure, to stay in Winnipeg. And you've got Dane Evans, who has already said that he's interested in testing free agency. Uh, and so that becomes kind of interesting, along with McLeod Bethel-Thompson. JB, obviously, we'll get into this in more detail in February. But just sort of as a, a quick teaser, where are you thinking the Argos will go in February with uh, regards to quarterback? Oh, gosh. I, I, I mean, I, I think they probably bring back MBT in in that they, you know, they chose him and they traded away uh, Arbuckle. So I think that, that they have kind of gone in on him. Um, I know that clearly the two quarterback idea that Dinwiddie believes in is true. I mean, Hamilton just used it to almost win a great cup. Um, so and that certainly validates his belief that that having two quarterbacks is a good thing. I don't I don't see them bringing in uh, any any CFL free agent. I think that you probably go MBT and you probably start you know uh, going through the forest and trying to find somebody. Uh, from the states that 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 could come up here and and be a star, that that would be my hope. I don't I don't want I don't want any of those guys. I think we're going to be looking at a situation where we may have McLeod Bethel Thompson and Dan Evans. I think that's Ugh. possible. Dan Evans has said he's interested in testing the market. I don't think either of those guys is going to command. Bo Levi Mitchell money. We know Coach Dimwitty wants two starting quarterbacks, and I agree with him. You need that. You look around the league, you need two starting quarterbacks. And so unless you're going to get really lucky, but where would the Argos have been this year without two starting quarterbacks? Where would the Tiger Cats have been this year without two starting quarterbacks? And you could even go, you, you look at BC, you can look at so many, you know, where, where there weren't two starting quarterbacks, there, there were issues. So I don't know. That's, that's something that I, I think... I think I would be interested in is a McLeod Bethel Thompson, Dane Evans combination. I think that's fascinating. I think you can probably afford that. I think you probably get both of those guys for around the cost of a, a Bo Levi Mitchell. I, you know, I don't know exactly. That's not my area of expertise, but I don't think, I don't think either one of those guys on their own is going to break the bank the way that uh, some of the, you know, what's viewed as quarterback stars uh, in I, this league will. I mean, there's so many Americans playing football. Surely, to heavens, you know, they can find somebody who can come up here and be a star. But it doesn't work like that. You can't just plug and play an American. We know that doesn't work. It's going to take like two or three years. Well, I'm not waiting that long. <laughs> yeah, well, you're about to. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. But that's something that we can get into more. Pinball's in looking uh, right now. He right now. Pinball is on the phone with people. They all are about about. I heard this kid can play, for sure. And and I do think there's some you know some interest in the guys that they brought in this year. You know, looking at Cole McDonald and all the other guys that they brought up. I wouldn't be surprised to see some of them back again. And we never really got a chance to see them in game situations. But you can't go to war with one of those guys. That can't be your guy. 
you've never seen them in a game. So it's got to, that's why if you're going with two quarterbacks, if we're following Coach Dinwiddie's system, it's got to be two guys like McLeod Bethel-Thompson and Dane Evans. But like I said, we'll get into that. I'm excited already for February as we get into free agent frenzy. What's great about coming off a season like this instead of the one in 2019 is we were talking about free agents in 2019 in like August. So uh, this is nice this year that it's the first time we've had to actually think about it. So uh, as far as the as far as the the rest of the starters go, you don't have a lot coming back in terms of starting receivers, starting running back. You know, you've got Curly Gittens Jr. coming back, Eric Rodgers. That's just about it for for starting skill players. Almost the entire O line is coming back, except I I don't think Darius Bladek is under contract for next year. But everyone else, you know, if you want them to stay, uh, they're under contract for the starters. Defensive line is almost the exact same story. Shane Ray, CN Power, uh, Sam Achimpong, Coney Ely, like they're they're all there if uh, you want to uh, go back with those guys. And it was such a good D-line. Uh, Enoch Mwamba is a, a big free agent, but I think the Argos are in a really good position to bring him back. Cameron Judge is, is under contract for next year. But yeah, Enoch Mwamba... I think Toronto holds all the cards. We saw that this year. Enoch took a lot less money to play with Toronto than was being potentially offered around the league. And it's because his family's here. And we've seen Enoch's family. They've been in some of the press conferences. You and I have seen them at, at practices. And I think that's really important to him. He wants to get into the front office work. He wants to be a GM one day. I think this is the situation. You offer him another, another year uh, with the Toronto Argonauts, with the idea that after that if he decides it's one more season maybe two and at that point uh, he transitions to the other side and uh, starts looking at front office work I don't know if he's he's interested in the coaching side of it or, or just sort of in the the management side of it but I, I think that's a perfect situation for him in Toronto where he doesn't have to leave his family or move his family anything like that and then the DBs are basically all coming back, which is a wonderful scenario because you and I love that defensive backfield. So there's there's a ton in place. I think if you look at all the teams around the league, I know I know we don't have a quarterback, but pretty much every other position is is good to go. Maybe maybe running back um, and receiver needs a bit of work, but I, I, those are the those are the easier guys to find. I think the the hard guys to find, except quarterback. You've got in place here. And then kicker punter, Tashiki Sato is the only one uh, on the roster at the moment because Boris Beattie's a free agent. I think, JB, I think you, whatever anyone wants to pay him, you add to that and bring him in, whatever it takes to get Boris Beattie back. I think he's almost your biggest free agent priority. I, I think that might even be bigger than the quarterback decision. You could argue that Boris Beattie was the most valuable player of the Toronto Argonauts. And he takes up two positions as both kicker and punter. As an elite kicker and good punter, you know, why not pay him more than anyone else is willing to? Yeah, I agree. I think I think you you know, it it you know, with that line about like punters and kickers are like lawyers, like you uh they don't matter until you need one, and uh, you know I think he's 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 great, and it's a locked in position. I'm all for it. Bring him back. He earned it. He's good. There's going to be a lot of interest. Teams are going to be interested in 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 signing him, so it's just a question of how much he was into being in Toronto. But uh, I do hope that they give him what he deserves because he earned it. Let's talk about the Grey Cup. I'm excited to talk about the Grey Cup because the Hamilton Tiger Cats lost the Grey Cup. 
JB, that was so much more enjoyable a finish to the season than if the Tiger Cats had come out on top. I, I was dreading that. Late in the game, when it looked like the Tiger Cats were going to win, I was just thinking like, oh, what a what a painful off season this is going to be. I'm just going to have to hear about this repeatedly. And I got to tell you, there's nothing better than when the Tiger Cats lose the Grey Cup. I, I felt great. I felt like my I felt like my team had won. And I don't care about the Blue Bombers. I like I like Coach O'Shea. I like Alden Darby. Actually, we've got a lot of former Argos on the Blue Bombers. And, you know, I cheer for those guys, sure. But, you know, the, the Blue Bombers don't mean anything to me. Uh, but, man, it, it felt good when that final whistle went, that weird interception that went off about 10 players uh, to end the game. I thought that was that was perfect. But let's talk about a few things before we get into, and we're not going to do a full game recap. You can find that on, on a lot of other podcasts. As an Argos podcast, we're just going to go kind of quickly through a few things. But one stat I love, I saw this, uh, someone uh, tweeted this at me, and I don't remember. I'm sorry for not giving credit to who sent me this, but since 1987 which was the last time the Toronto Argonauts lost a Grey Cup game, 1987. Uh, since then, Toronto is 6-0 and in Grey Cups. Hamilton, since that time, is 1-6 and in Grey Cups. And that one came more than 20 years ago, which uh, is, is even more fantastic. I love that stat since 1987. That's my favorite stat that came out of Grey Cup week. So let's talk about the game, JB. Uh, it, was, it was a good game. It was a great game. You know, a little I, windy. Uh, yeah, you hate to see <laughs> you hate to see the weather be so much that it actually affects gameplay. But uh, you know, you're having the Great Cup in the middle of December. I guess you take your chances. Um, yeah, I thought it was a good game. I thought that uh, Hamilton played well. I, I didn't think that Winnipeg played particularly well, um, and some of that may just be, you know the expectations of, of, of a regular season and they came in and kind of were okay, but not dominant. Yeah. The game was there. The game was there for Hamilton to win. And you know, that, that Rouge um, deflated the crowd and certainly perplexed me and, and many football fans uh, and, you know, had a shot for the game winning field goal. Uh, that just got washed because, you know, the special teams just weren't ready to to handle that kick return without taking a rouge. You know, I know stuff happens in a game, and maybe it was too too uh, too complex to tell the returner when to do it and when not to do it. But man, that's that's a bit of a dagger. I thought that that cost them the great cup. I mean, to not put too fine a point on it. Um, and I'll, you know, I'll be honest. I felt, I felt bad for those Hamilton fans. I know I like to clown no. them, but no, that's... come on, they, you know, it's Look, cold I... and they were cheering on their team and their team was taking on a superior team and they'd fought them, uh, to, to such a close game at the end of the game, uh, for, a, for a coaching slash player mistake like that to to kind of dagger those hopes i uh, you know i felt i felt bad I, I don't have the vitriol in my in my heart for hamilton i do i felt great and <laughs> look i i appreciate hamilton tiger cats fans i i do i appreciate any fan of the cfl i think if you are a passionate fan of, of whoever it is hamilton ottawa montreal any of the west teams i love that 
I congratulate you. I think that's great. I, I cheer for you as, as a fan of whatever team it is. Amazing. However, I am, once we talk about the football things, I don't want anything good to happen to Hamilton's football team because that's, uh, I'm a fan of the Toronto Argonauts. And so I'm always going to actively cheer against the Hamilton Tiger Cats. I think that's part of sports. That's a part of fandom. That's a part of the game. I, again, I, I don't wish, I don't wish ill will. I don't wish injuries. I don't wish, you know, people having a, a terrible time or wish poor attendance on anybody. No, I hope Hamilton sells out. I hope they have a great time. I hope they're really happy with their team. I hope they field a really competitive team every year. And then I hope they lose in the Grey Cup. That's, you know, that's, I, I don't think that's uh, unreasonable, JB. And I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty disappointed uh, by your feeling sorry for Hamilton Tiger Cats fans. I can't believe you said that. Uh, yeah, look, I, I felt, um, I did. I, I felt bad that they had, uh, you know, I felt bad for the, you know, for the coaches that they had game planned up a superior opponent and they just couldn't couldn't close it couldn't land the plane i get that i feel bad for the coaches too coach steinauer who we both like a lot yeah i feel bad for him but you said fans and that's a whole different thing uh that's you know that that's i'm not on board with that but let's talk (laughs) about coaching because extreme weather games often do come down to coaching we saw that recently the buffalo new england game Uh, like we knew as soon as you saw that weather as soon as you saw that it was like a a blizzard you knew that new england was going to win that game because they were going to out coach Buffalo. There was no doubt about that. And in a game like this, it did come down to coaching in the end. And ultimately, that's that's how the game was decided. Coach O'Shea uh, outcoached Coach Steinhauer. And both are great coaches. Both did a great job. But that's what it came down to in the end. And I thought there were actually a few mistakes. I'll talk about the Rouge in a second. But I thought, I thought O'Shea made a mistake earlier in the game. Now, it didn't come back to haunt him. But it didn't haunt him only because they got those two Rouges late in the game. And the situation that I'm talking about is in the fourth quarter, you've got eight minutes and 42 seconds left in the fourth. Hamilton is leading 22-10. It's a 12-point game. Winnipeg is on the 12-yard line. It's third and 10 on the Hamilton 12. Every single time with the wind, I'm, I'm going for it there. I think you have to go for it there. They kicked the field goal to get within nine. And I hate that move to go from 12 points to nine points. You're going from a two score game to a two score game with eight minutes left. You're just you're just throwing away that situation because let's say you go for it on on third down. You're still and don't get it. You're still down by 12, still two scores. And Hamilton's on their 12 yard line. They're way backed up against a gale force wind. I think that's that's fine great, you know, we'll get a couple more shots. And and we saw they did because they were going to need those two scores anyway. So yeah, in my mind, uh, that was a mistake by the Blue Bombers on a night where they didn't make a lot of mistakes. Now, fast forward to those two Rouges. So here's why, here's why anybody that's arguing that those, you know, that was the correct thing to do is, is wrong. So with that first Rouge, the ball came in at 100 miles an hour, all right? So it's 5.33 left in the game at that point. Uh, Castillo kicks it off. It's a it's a rocket. And Tim White's standing uh, just inside uh, his, his uh, goal line. And it goes off his hands. Uh, like he basically has to jump up for it. It goes off his hands and out the back of the end zone. Because he touched it, it was a rouge. 
if he doesn't touch that ball, it's still firing at the back of the end zone. That thing was coming in hot. There's no way that's not going at the back of the end zone. He has to know in that situation not to touch that ball. Let it go at the back of the end zone. You now get it at the 25 instead of the 35, but you don't give up that point. And those 10 yards, I don't care about those 10 yards in a game that's coming down to the wire. They they close it now to one point. That's that's the that's the situation that it was, right? So Dembski caught that touchdown to make it 22-19. Uh, the convert made it 22-20. And then the Rouge, 22-21. And now we're talking about that that one-point game. So yeah, to me, that was the first mistake. And then the second one, the one you're talking about uh, late in the game, uh, is where Winnipeg is up by two points. It's 24-22 after the Castillo field goal. And again, uh, it's a rouge to now make it a field goal game. Now, this one was different. This one was coming down. It had to be fielded. This one's not probably going out the back of the end zone. So you've got to field it. And Tim White fields it basically one yard deep uh, into the Hamilton end zone. JB, you have to take that ball out of the end zone. There's no way in that situation you can take a rouge. No, you 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 can't. I, I mean, I, I assume, you know, either the you know the kid would you know would just went into like muscle memory, and was thinking I don't want to waste any time on the clock, and uh, took a quick knee as you would in American college football, to uh, you know to get the ball out and to not have the clock run. Um, that's what it struck like to me. Like he, he was so casual about it. Um, I'm surprised they didn't have. Usually, teams will have a secondary guy staring at the returner, giving him directions. You know, just to be like, "Hey, stay there," or "Yeah, let's go." Um, but I guess all that stuff just happened really fast, and they hadn't thought about not giving up a rouge. So it's hard to say whether to to just blame the player, but uh, man. You can't have that there, but that's you know, hey, that's that's championship football. You can't you can't make a mistake like that in the last minute and Could, hope that the football gods will bail you out. That's just not if, how it happens. If you bring it out of the end zone in that scenario, you're probably getting it out to about the twenty or so, and that's not the thirty-five. Yes, it's fifteen yards difference, but fifteen yards versus that point in that situation, you're you're basically conceding a tie. Now. We didn't know they were going to get that close all the way down to the five. But the thought was they were going to get into field goal range and 15 yards to force overtime or 15 yards to kick for the win. You're you're going to take those 15 yards to kick for the win every single time. You have to take that ball out. You get to the 20. Maybe you get further, but you at least get to the 20 on that kickoff. And and you're in business. And based on how that drive went, and I know it's not exactly the same, maybe maybe Winnipeg's defense is different when they're only up by two versus up by three. But no matter what, in that situation, unless you are deep in your end zone, you've got to take that out. And I think that's probably where the miscommunication was. I think White was probably told, look, if you're deep in the end zone, you got to take a knee. And there's so many variables here. It's such a weird rule. And, you know, there's so many things that have to be explained if you're not talking about your you know your your normal returner there's all this stuff going on and i think he caught it in the end zone his brain sort of fired oh if i'm in the end zone take a knee you know missing a small detail there uh and he took a knee and that that yeah that that uh, among many things it's not just about that one play but that's obviously the easy one to look at and say yeah that that cost them the great cup but you know what so did the other rouge so did a lot of different 
uh, plays that were missed. So did, you know, what could have maybe been a, a caught pass by Ackland right at the end of the game. Uh, so did what happened in overtime. So it's not, it's never about one play, but that one certainly stands out in my mind. And then, uh, it, like I said before, the win, there are four touchdowns in this game. All four touchdowns were scored with the wind. And so that's how it became a, a, a really, you know, a, a battle of wits, a, a coaching battle. And Coach O'Shea choosing to defer and choose side in the beginning because you want the wind in the second quarter, which takes a lot longer than the first quarter. And you want the wind in the fourth quarter because it takes a lot longer than the third quarter because you've got that stoppage time under three minutes. So um, th- those were great decisions. I think that's that was a big difference in the game too. And so, yeah, congratulations to the, the Winnipeg Blue Bombers coaching staff on a really well-coached game. JB, we've got some suggestions and Uh, messages for Commissioner Ambrosi and the league office with regards to some of the changes that are being proposed. First of all, what's your initial reaction when you see people throwing around? It seems like every year after the Grey Cup, it's like, well, we've got to do this. This is how we've got to change the game. This is what needs to happen. What are ideas that you immediately dismiss? What are ideas you like? Uh, I'm okay with them throwing around any idea. I, I don't think, I don't think four downs is, is going to, uh, attract anybody. I don't think, you know, I don't think that's the case. Um, I, I think that, you know, I think that there are a couple of significant areas in terms of popularity. I mean, I talked ages ago in an article about it, but, you know, I think that number one, you have got to find a way to make fantasy relevant. Fantasy drives NFL popularity among teams. Um, you know, I, I've, you've got to find a way to make CFL fantasy um, more of a thing. I think I think that to me is 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 number one. I thought, you know, the betting a little bit this year helped, but in terms of like if you're trying to attract an under twenty audience, um, I think that, you know, um, I I would love to see games moved off Sunday. You know, I would I I don't know why they are competing with the NFL. Um, in the playoffs. I think that's madness and they need to get those games off Sunday and get those games onto Saturday. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I think the great cup should be Saturday night. I think the Super Bowl should be Saturday night, but I think the great cup should be Saturday night. I think that the playoffs, the, the conference finals should be on Saturday. Um, I, I think get away from Sunday. I don't know why you're burying yourself under the King Kong. That is the NFL. Um, in terms of playoffs, um, you know, and I think from like a great cup perspective, again, they do not do a great job of connecting the CFL to high school football. Uh, I think that it's still, we both coach high school football and there's a little bit of connection with the CFL, but it should be an onslaught. They should be constantly bombarding us with ideas. Um, because if you know if kids who are playing Canadian football don't watch Canadian football, then what chance do you have of getting anybody? You have to be able to figure out. You should be. They should be. You know, running market research and all these kids. These kids are playing Canadian football. Why don't you watch the CFL? That's who they need to go ask. Um, they should be polling and market researching and talking to those kids to try and find out what might attract them more um, to, to it. And I think, I think, you know, lastly, 
I've talked about this before too. I think Canadian coaching, I think coaching in the CFL is way too stodgy. You know, there's no reason we shouldn't be like some SEC teams uh, who are going out there either you're no punt or air raid or, you know, push the push the boundaries of that rule book. Um, we, we look like a, a lot of playbooks look like watered down NFL playbooks. And I think that as the NFL becomes more like the CFL and the NFL is more about, you know, getting first downs on second down, um, we need to stand out. And I think that it doesn't have to be circus shows, but, uh, you know, I think that t- coaches do not push the boundaries of the rule book enough. We don't have enough coaches who are in the lab trying to come up with something that we haven't seen before and, and something that's exciting and lends itself to highlights. Um, you know, I think all of that is where I would start when it comes to trying to make the CFL more attractive to to fans under 20. There's a few things that I want to address that you brought up that I think are really interesting. In terms of the scoring, I, I don't really want to get into that here, but you brought it up and, and I have a thought on this. So scoring's down, we know that. But I think with regards to CFL, there are a few reasons why scoring is down. I think a big one that doesn't get talked about a ton is exactly what you, you talked about, the style of play. It used to be that the style of play in the CFL wasn't like anything you saw in America. And so you had American defensive backs, linebackers coming into the CFL, and this was a, a different world with all of the five wide passing offenses that you had up here. Now that that style of game is being played not only in the NFL, but all across college football, these guys are coming in, you know, first year American players like Jamal Peters, for example, guy that comes up here. He's seen that kind of stuff his, his whole life. He's, his whole football career has been about this kind of offense. And so it's not as difficult to, def- to defend as it once was. These concepts that you've got with six DBs out there and, and, and these, these, you know, quads concepts that they're throwing at you, that doesn't phase you the way it used to a few years ago. So I think that is one of the things. And I, like you're saying, I think one of the ways to, to fix that is you need a more aggressive offensive attitude, not just let's do what they do in the NFL. Let's run the same concepts, the same plays, find creative solutions, find different ways uh, to to score points, take more chances. There should be way more, especially with the wider field with that extra yard third down should be almost automatic you're going for it you know once you're once you're anywhere near midfield uh, and i don't even really care what the, the the distance is i think you're you know third and five third and six go for it go for it push it try uh, the uh you know the the excitement from from offense if you're going for it on four or five more third downs a game I think it'll be there. So that was one of the things that you addressed. Another one I want to talk about more is the scheduling. And you talked about not going up against the NFL. The other leagues, the other big leagues know not to go up against the NFL. They don't want to go anywhere near the NFL. Major League Baseball doesn't want to go anywhere near the NFL. None of the sports want to go anywhere near the NFL. They avoid it as much as they possibly can. And while the CFL schedule has to be made well in advance of seeing exactly what the NFL schedule is going to look like each year or what the NBA schedule is going to look like or the NHL schedule is going to look like. There are some things you know. You know they are going to be NFL games on Sunday, like you said. Don't play games on Sunday. And the reason I know this matters is because if it's a Wednesday night and I'm looking for something to watch on my TV, 
and I turn on my TV and it's, uh, I don't know, Idaho uh, playing against Utah State, I will watch that game. I would never seek out that game. I would not watch that game under almost any other circumstances. But if it's a Wednesday night and there's no other football on, I will watch that game. And so you can't tell me that's not going to be the case with CFL games, whether it's in America or Canada, sports fans sitting around, non-CFL fans. If it's Wednesday night and that's the only football game on, people will watch. And so this becomes a greater thing when you even, you know, you get to people that do like the CFL, but they also like the NFL or they do like the CFL, but they've got a college football team they follow. Don't go up against the big events. And then tying this back to something you've spoken about a lot is schedule the heck out of that break by the Major League Baseball All-Star week. Uh, you know, you've written articles about that. You've talked about that for years. There have to be CFL games during the Major League Baseball All-Star break. There's nothing. It's the deadest time in all of sports. And yet there is never a CFL game uh, on, on those days. And we've never heard a reasonable explanation as to why that is. You want to find new fans? You want everyone's eyes? People are desperate for that. You know what they talk about on sports radio, on sports television during those days? It's the worst. Everyone tries to take vacations during those times because they know there's nothing. It's completely dead. Give us a full day of CFL games. That's what we would love to see. And JB, the very last thing I want to talk about, and this is with regards to rule changes and three downs and four downs, people aren't choosing not to watch the CFL because of three downs. It results in one or two more punts per game, maybe. That's not why. That's not why they're not watching. People aren't saying, no, I'm not watching the CFL. It's only three downs. I, I, I promise you, that's not it. It's nothing to do with the three downs. It's nothing to do with almost any single rule. If there is one thing that changes it, if you ever looked at NFL games and CFL games and just sort of you recognize that the look and feel of it is somewhat different, the reason for that is the field width. Now, I personally love the field width. I think that's one of the greatest parts of the CFL is how much space there is. I love that as an offensive guy. I think that's awesome. But if you want to talk about how the product can look different, that is one change that you could make that will make a tangible difference, not only on TV, but in the stadiums, you watch a CFL game in any stadium in Canada, and then you go and watch a, a game at the big house in Michigan, and the field looks like a postage stamp. And I mean that in a good way, like you're right on top of the action. There is nothing, there's no space between you and the players on the field. You feel like you're, you're sitting on the hash marks, and it doesn't feel like that in the CFL. And some fields with the, the CFL have not only, not, not only is the field so wide, but some fields actually have a lot of space between where the field, uh, where the first row stands starts and the sideline. So you could be a couple hundred yards away from where the ball's being snapped. And that means the cameras are too. The angles are different. You're not a part of the action. So that is one thing that I don't really want to change. But if you're looking for how to make the game a bit more marketable in terms of the television product and being there in the stadium, that would help. Now, the problem is if you change the width of the field, now you got to change all these other things. You have to now go four downs. You have to now go 11 players on the field. And so it's, you know, it's easy for me to say change the size of the field. But really, if you change the side of the field, you're playing American football now. Every Canadian rule you have, with a couple exceptions, now have to change. So I, I'm not a, I, I don't really want that. 
but of all the things that are being uh, talked about that could make a difference, that's the only one that I think maybe could. I just don't think it's worth the risk because there's so many other parts of the Canadian game that you'd have to take away because of that. All right, JB, it is time for us to announce the X's and Argos 2021 season award winners. Are you excited, JB? Um, yes. You're not selling it, but that's I, I'm excited about this for, for both of us. I wish we had actual trophies uh, more than this, just this trophy graphic to give out. I'm sure players would put this on their mantelpiece next to their game balls of, you know, 100 catches and everything else. Um, this is a big one. The X's and Argos 2021 season awards. Uh, so yeah, this is how it's going to work. We're going to go through each positional group. We will go through, uh, also defensive player, offensive player of the year, coach of the year, executive, and we've got a few fun awards in there as well, but let's start things out with our positional awards. So for offensive line, this was a really tough one, JB, because it was pretty even across the board. We've talked about how much we like the play of Jamal Campbell. We talked about how valuable, um, a guy like Philip Blake is who had to go in and play a, a starting role at guard and center. And without him, this team would have been sung. And how much improved Dejon Allen was from the start of the season. And he was a real strength. And we love what Peter Nicastro did at center. But our vote this year, the 2021 most valuable offensive lineman, Darius Bledek. He was solid. You could always count on him. He really didn't have a bad game. And he also could run block and pass block pretty equally, uh, which not every other lineman could say. And so I think uh, it's a tough call, but he's our offensive lineman of the year. For most valuable running back, this is going to be John White. And I love what DJ Foster did this year, but John White, when he wasn't there at the end of the season, there was a difference. The Argos could not run the ball the same way. And now I know that coincided with Peter Nicastro's injury. And so you wonder how much that factored into. But we really saw it when you had John White carrying the load and then brought in DJ Foster. That pairing worked. And DJ Foster on his own, as much as I love him, it wasn't the same. So John White, most valuable running back. JB, most valuable wide receiver, Curly Gittens Jr. Uh, sing his praises, JB. Yeah, I, I thought he really, he kind of built up early on. And then in the last, you know, four games, he was their best wide receiver. Uh, he's he's somebody they can build around. He's got he's got great hands. Uh, he runs decent routes. Um, he, he's able to come down with contested balls. I, you know, I, I have, I think, uh, you know, he is, I, I don't know if he's a star per se, but I think that he is a full-time professional football receiver. And that's great. I mean, that's how you build the wide receiver room. And as a Canadian and as a Z, like how many times do you have a Z receiver with, we had like 600 yards receiving. He's got basically as, as many receptions as Tavares Daniels, as many yards as these guys. I think, I think it was only Collins Jr. who had more yardage than, than Curly Gaines Jr. Maybe Tavares Daniels ended up with a little bit more at the end. But the fact that he's in the conversation with those guys as a Canadian, as a Z, that's huge. And so, yeah, no question to me. I love what some of the other guys did. But yeah, Curly Gaines Jr., most valuable wide receiver on this team. Most valuable defensive lineman. I don't even know if we need to use his real name now. His his nickname that you gave him, JB, is <laughs> as did, did not it did not catch on fire, but that's okay. I feel like it can percolate, it can uh, it can marinate uh, over the year, and and eventually 
Uh, my guy Rod on TSN will come around on it. Yeah, Sean Oakman, the CN power, as you like to call him. I've seen it used twice on Twitter uh, <laughs> by loyal listeners, and I appreciate it every single yeah. time. I think that's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's right there. I think, you know, look, he, he, you know, he, he slowed down a little bit in the second half. Um, and again, it's tough to tell, like, with usage and scheme, uh, you know, he was on the inside a lot and they tend not to grab attention. But I thought he I thought he held that team defense together in the first half of the season um, playing on the inside. We wondered if he would be OK with playing on the inside. Uh, and he was, you know, I think like, you know, honestly, it wouldn't surprise me if he got look at NFL camps next year, you know, because he was, you know, he was a bit of a wild card. Um, I think from off field stuff and he came in and was a professional this year and he's got this, you know, he's got this, the specs to be an NFL player. It would not surprise me if he got an invite to an NFL camp. Yeah, he was, he was awesome right from training camp where he really took on a leadership role. And I wasn't expecting to see that from him. He was one of the most impressive guys at training camp and that carried on through the season. He was amazing, like you're saying. And shout out to our man, Elliot in BC, who dropped the most recent CN Power reference. He didn't even have to explain it. He didn't even say Sean Oakman anywhere in there. He just said, yeah, CN Power. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, see, JB, you're, you're, I know, your I just need one on. more, I need one more season out of him, you know, I, I don't think that's going to make it to the NFL. The most valuable linebacker, this is a tough one. We ended up going with Dexter McCoyle. And I think the reason for this is that he was just, he was so valuable. This is not a great explanation for me. Uh, he wasn't starting for most of the year, but he was getting more snaps than just about any other linebacker. And you could see the difference when he was off the field. Dexter McCoyle was amazing. He was so versatile. You could use him, even though he was a linebacker, in pretty much any situation. You could play him deep. They would sometimes even drop him into like the free spot from the linebacker position. They would blitz him. They would send him in coverage. They would play him in, in run defense. So, uh, yeah, you, you can't. You can't replace a guy like that. And I'm worried because he's a free agent coming up. This is a guy they need to bring back because even though on paper he may not be a starter when everyone's healthy, he's one of the most valuable players on the defense. And so he's our most valuable linebacker. Yeah, he was great. He Again, he he's a guy I think we could definitely bring back. I, I hope they do. I think he, he he's versatile. Um, he was really useful. He's, you know, he's a guy that, I think they will bring back. I don't. I don't think he's going to get offered a truckload by anybody. And uh, yeah, I, I think I would assume that he'll be a good resign. I think Toronto understands the value of him more than most other teams do. Seeing him at every practice, every game, they know what he's worth to this team. And I think other teams looking at it view him as a guy that was, yeah, he was a great guy coming off the bench. You know, they maybe don't see him as a starter. You know, I, these are football guys. They know, they're, they're aware, but it's still hard to justify the cost uh, as opposed to justifying the cost who, uh, of a linebacker who was a starter for 18 games, something like that. So I, I, I think Toronto probably uh, has a chance to bring him back. I really hope so, because, uh, yeah, I, I like the guy a lot. Most valuable defensive back. Friend of the podcast, Shaq Richardson. Tell us why, JB. <laughs> well, I mean, he he didn't get a lot of uh, passes to defend, but I think that he, you know, he 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 was great in center field. I think that he brought a real leadership and swagger to that DB group, which you need of all the positions. You got to have it. You got to have that 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 sense of like you know never worrying about the last play, always worried about the next play. 
and you know I thought that the I thought the defensive back group has has real potential to be a real force um and I think that they adapted and ad- adopted Shaq's personality um so I I hope they bring him back I thought that he he did a great job of of kind of leading them this year so it's like kind of an award for leadership in a sense you know but I want to give a shout out to my guy Tristan Deku I thought that kid played great you know I thought I thought he 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 made some he made some really terrific plays um so I think he's going to be a real player yeah, Tristan Deku, going way back to when they signed him, I remember watching his Oregon State film, and I was blown away by him. I didn't even realize at that point that he was drafted. I think he was a fifth-round draft pick by the Cowboys. But yeah, watching his Oregon State film, I'm like, who who's this guy? Because he has such he has such good size, he's got good speed, and he's just got a real instinct for the ball. I, I thought, coming into the season, he had a real shot at that boundary corner spot. And of course he ended up getting a lot of playing time. He looked fantastic. And Jamal Peters in there as well. Another guy as a rookie that you, you got to mention there, the defensive backfield was so good. But like you said, with, with Shaq Richardson, the best communicator on the field, he's always talking, always communicating with his guys. It's like that at practice. It's like that in games. And I remember Coach Bell talking to me before the season started about the most important thing in the defensive backfield. He talked about it as being a triangle between the boundary half, the sandbacker, and the field half. And that's sort of what makes your defense. And yeah, you need a shutdown boundary corner and, and a great free safety. Those things all help. But that triangle is so key for the communication. And you look for the Toronto Argonauts at Shaq Richardson, Jeff Richards, and Chris Edwards. And you see that, yeah, that, that triangle uh, was solid. But Shaq yeah, is the communicator. He led it. And that I, I don't know, you know, Chris Edwards kind of dropped off too in the second half. I thought I thought he was on pace to be the MVP of the whole defense. But that's, you know, that's for another day. And the most valuable, we're onto the, some of the big awards now, the most valuable special teams contributor. This guy could have almost been the most valuable offensive player. We went in a different direction for that. But Boris Beatty, there's no argument from anyone here. The number of 50 plus yard field goals he just hammered. That streak that he went on uh, where he'd hit 14 straight field goals, uh, eventually finally missing one. But even in that, even in that last game to kick six field goals in that last game uh, to score all 19 uh, of Toronto's of Toronto's points, Boris Beattie was just spectacular this year. Probably, definitely one of the best three Toronto Argonauts this season, and I think he's got an argument for number one. Yeah, he was he was amazing. He he earned his money. I hope they I hope that Toronto uh, gives him his money, and uh, you know that you've got that position solidified. Don't don't muck about, you know, because there's nothing worse than trying to trying to track down a kicker. Um, you know, as we've seen in Toronto, like, you know, give the man his, give the man his flowers. The guy, the guy crushed it. Give him, give him that. And, uh, I was surprised you, you didn't award this to any of our punt up backs. <laughs> they were not in the running. Uh, although it, it got noticeably better through the second half of the season, <laughs> it did, it did but yeah, man, that was a mess early on, but yeah, Boris Beattie, yeah, whatever great. this guy, and whatever he, was he wants, great. he bring was him great back. in the East final. He was, he was, the guy was nails. From the get-go. Pay that man his money. That's a... Uh, what's that poker movie? <laughs> Rounders. 
Rounders. Rounders reference. Nice. Uh, all right. Defensive player of the year. For me, it's Enoch Mwamba. Uh, and the reason I give it to Enoch is we saw how different the defense was when he was injured. Those few weeks in the middle of the season when he was out, teams were running at will against the Argos. There wasn't the same identity. You really saw how important he was to the defense. And it's funny because he wasn't a player that was standing out early in the season as a guy making highlight tackles. He wasn't you know, on the, on the post-game highlights. He wasn't in Twitter videos, but he was doing his job extremely effectively. And when he wasn't there, uh, man, it was, it was doors wide open. You know, things were, things were bad. So uh, yeah, you he, saw you know, when he came back again, it tightened up. He was good. I mean, I think, you know, he, you know, as they knew that we all know he's, he's a step slower than he was, aren't we all? Um, but, uh, you know, I, he's got one more year in him. I, I don't least, have any. Yeah. Re- I don't have any reason to believe he doesn't have one more year in him. So I'd I'd love to see him bring him back. And he's he you know he's a great pillar to kind of build around. I'd love. Yeah, you know, I don't want to get too much into this. <laughs> there are some other things I want to see at linebacker. But yeah, yeah, you know, Mama did well. Most valuable offensive player of the year for the Argos, McLeod Bethel Thompson, your guy, JB. Old work gloves. I think that's what you called him. Was that was that a spring podcast? You referred to him as old work gloves. Well, I I was a, I was a, you were excited, and I said I'm as excited as buying a pair of work gloves. Uh, look, he um, I'll, I'll meet him halfway. Look, I you know I got nothing against a guy. I think that he he is who he is. I thought that he he played within himself this year. Uh, at the beginning, kind of got off the rails, uh, got back on the rail. Um, I think that he's fine, but, uh, you know, not, it's not really enough for me. I think that he is the, you know, I think he's the definition of a game manager. I think that he is a, a perfectly fine quarterback, but, um, I would, you know, keep looking. And to me, I look at his record, he wins football games and he had a great season in that regard. His, his winning percentage was fantastic. He didn't always play his best football. He was certainly better when Nick Arbuckle was on the team. And I think that's something they need to look at. And that's why I think another reason why this needs to be a two quarterback system next year. And you have something like McLeod, Bethel Thompson, Dane Evans. I I think McLeod's going to look really good. So, um, yeah, he had some great games and he was obviously good enough where they felt like they could trade away Nick Arbuckle, the guy that was supposed to be their future. So, yeah, hats off to McLeod, Bethel Thompson, the offensive player. I think more, and just to jump on that, like more than the NFL, I think with the the beauty of the two quarterback as we saw in the East Final and then the Great Cup is like if you prepare for one quarterback and then suddenly you've got another guy, it just throws you off kilter. You, you you know you've got you've got your keys and you've got your your plays and you're 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 looking for his 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 you know what he likes to do and you got all that and all of a sudden this other guy comes in and all that's out the window and it's not like the other guy is unbelievable. You just don't have him cold like the first quarterback. And I thought that that happened to Winnipeg when, you know, they were all set for Evans and there was the changeup. And I thought that happened to Toronto. Um, So that's definitely an advantage to kind of have a, you know, a left-right combo. And the last of the big awards, most valuable coach, looking at all the coaches on this coaching staff, and this coaching staff had more coaches than usual this year because of the, the odd situation. I don't think there's any choice. I think we got to give it to head coach Ryan Dinwiddie. Uh, I thought he was fantastic in his first season. I know he made a couple of really high-profile mistakes, 
that people were jumping all over him for, but they were learning experiences. They were things he was able to, uh, you know, get away with wins still in those situations and, and mistakes that he won't make again. I think all in all, he was really good. Almost every philosophy he had was correct. Almost every decision he made was right. He kept, as a rookie coach, to take a veteran pack team like this and lead them the way he did. He's the real deal. I have all sorts of faith in head coach Ryan Dinwiddie. I did feel like it was going to be a load for a rookie coach, and he came through with flying colors. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't care if he makes a couple of mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Um, he didn't repeat mistakes, which is the most important thing. Uh, you know, I, there were there were things I would hope that he'll improve in the off season. Um, you know, from an offensive coordinator point of view, and 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 getting a sense of. What you know, I mean, it'll be very interesting to see how well he self scouts, um, how well he's able to build on this year heading into next year. But I thought he did uh, a hell of a job with that team. I thought that this was not a team loaded with you know all CFL guys, uh, lots of injuries, guys in and out. This easily could have been you know, a, a much, a much worse season. So I, I, I give full credit to him. I thought he did a hell of a job. When you consider that more than half his starters missed almost half the season, it was an amazing job. He yeah. kept having to bring in new guys every week. It's like, oh, we got four new starters on offense this week and three new starters on defense. And he didn't miss a beat. And this no, was one of the most difficult situations. Not only that, changing coordinators midseason, changing coaches midseason, all the stuff that he had to deal with from injuries to everything else. In his rookie season as a head coach, you can only imagine what he'll be like if he gets a smoother ride in 2022. Yeah, it was great. And, you know, look, full credit to Pinball and the guys, too. They saw it in him. And, you know, we had, you know, to our credit, we had faith in him, too. We thought he would do well. You know, we didn't. We thought the season would go pretty much as, as it did. So, you know, he he fulfilled uh, he fulfilled our, our confidence in him. And most valuable executive, I think, was an easy decision for us to director of scouting Vince Magri. He just doesn't make mistakes. His drafting over the past few seasons has been great. And you saw that on the field this year, how many guys over the last two drafts, especially, were not only in the game, but it really contributing. And you see it even in the, the league awards, you know, from Peter Nicastro uh, getting recognized. You know, everybody's uh, raving about the Argos draft class for the last two seasons. Uh, and you've got to give full credit to Vince Magri. He's been awesome. And now we're talking about, uh, you know, possible movement with the departure of John Murphy, is this a situation where Vince Magri is ready to move on up? You know, or do you, do you risk taking him out of a role that he's so good at? But he's he's been with the team now for like, what, seven years? And so, you know, maybe that's a possibility. He's so good at his job. I think he deserves every opportunity there is. Yeah, he clearly, you know, has a great eye for uh, for talent and for guys who can who can prosper in the Argo system. So yeah, um, you know it's a pretty natural progression to go from, you know, head of head of, uh, you know, uh, scouting to pro personnel. So yeah, it makes sense to me. Hi JB, it's time for our fun awards. Uh, I'll start it off with the honorary fun, Canadian fun in quotation marks. No, it's actually fun. These are fun awards. Uh, the honorary Canadian award. This is uh, I've just decided this is an award that is going to be given to an American player uh, for. Uh, showing, I don't know, his, his uh, Canadian-ness. 
Uh, I'm going with Jamal Peters for this award, and I've got a story to back it up. So Jamal Peters never in his life until this year played a football game north of Little Rock, Arkansas. All right. He's from Mississippi, played in Mississippi, never once, not in high school, not in college, had to travel north of Little Rock, Arkansas. And here he is up here. I want to detail a practice that I saw him at where it was one of the first really cold practices of the year. We were into the minuses and he's out there as one of the only guys not wearing track pants. He's out there, bare legs, not complaining. Everyone else, Canadians, Americans that have been here for years, they're all wrapped up, uh, they're, they're, they're cold, and he's out there running around without the track pants. I, I think he and AJ Willette were actually the only two on the team uh, that were doing that. But AJ's been here for a season, and he's, he's an Ohio guy, right? He he's, knows that northern weather. So Jamal Peters, you are the honorary Canadian of this season. The award for best DJ. This is <laughs> this this is one of this was one of my favorite parts of, of every practice we went to. So this is going to John Magri, and the the video guys were were amazing this year. But I love talking to John before practice got going because one of his jobs, uh, and I think some of the players would say one of the most important things he did, even though it's not clearly video work is extremely important. But the players knew and loved John for his music selection because during moments of practice where music was allowed to be played John was the DJ and it wasn't always it wasn't always his own personal playlist uh he did get criticized I know we heard we heard people uh shouting up uh uh I don't know words of encouragement to the DJ uh they questioned the DJ sometimes uh, the DBs especially were very into their music and on days where where John Magri was off they really let him hear it but yeah what a great job he did when when Drake dropped his new album the very <laughs> next day he's blasting that over the stadium everyone's dancing around having a good time pre-practice you know pre pre-stretching and uh, yeah you got to give a shout out to John Magri as the best DJ now to be fair he's also the only DJ but yeah, he was great at it. He did. He crushed it. Tying into that, the most improved dancer on the team. This was an easy one. This is a runaway winner, Josh Haggerty. Josh Haggerty, when he came in at the start of the year, as I said, the DBs, they loved the music probably more than any positional group on the team. And they'd get into it. They had some spirit. Uh, they would dance, uh, you know, to, especially when John Magri's having an, a, a good day. He's, uh, he's playing some good songs that everybody likes. And there was some instructional time early in the season where Josh Haggerty was, uh, I, would, I wouldn't say he, was, he wasn't getting laughed at, but he was getting some lessons. He was getting a little bit of direction from the DBs. And by the end of the season, he had it down without question, the most improved dancer on the team, Josh Haggerty. <laughs> yeah, you know, he, he, he had finished up the year nicely, actually, you know. Um, he's a solid special teamer. And, uh, you know, I, I think that he, he did pretty well for a guy thrown in, um, as a rook, uh, you know, uh, well, it would be interesting to see if, if, you know, look at the very, there's nothing wrong with being a great special teamer. So, you know, let's see what, how he develops. And I wouldn't give up on him as free safety either. I think he's got real potential there. He's going to add some weight this off season. Your first year coming out, we talked about him a lot, but yeah, we both really like him. We see the potential in him at, at worst. He's a great special teamer. Like that's the low end. That's the that's the floor for Josh Haggerty. And so, you know, while we joke about his dancing and stuff, he's uh, 
he's a player and he's going to be around the CFL for a long time. And I think he's got real potential and he's got a really high ceiling there. But we know even the floor will take that. So, yeah, Josh Haggerty, shout out to him, most improved dancer. (laughs) The most weather resistant Argo. This has got to be Josh Burton. I do not envy what Josh Burton had to go through. These video guys like, you know, John Magri. Yes, he got harassed for his DJ work sometimes. But he had a much more comfortable film position than Josh Burton, who is like out there in all weather, basically on top of the scoreboard at every practice, you know, standing in the end zone, getting rained on, snowed on, hailed on. This guy couldn't feel his face after every practice and, and every game. And he took it and, uh, and he, did it. He, did, he did great with his job. And he's just such a nice guy. Those guys are all great. Everyone from the, um, you know, from the, the, the Argos office on down uh, were, were wonderful to work with this year. But yeah, those guys are fantastic. So Josh Burton, most weather resistant Argo. And our last fun award, this was a tough one and a really tight one. We took this one to a vote. I consulted uh, various different members of the Argos to get a final result on this. And the category is best pregame dresser. So it came down to one vote. There was one vote of difference. And for this one, I'll give you our runner-up. Our runner-up was McLeod Bethel-Thompson for all his amazing vintage Argos gear. And if you never noticed it, in all of his post-game press conferences and his pre-game uh, arrival, he was wearing amazing vintage Argos gear from Zubaz pants to hats he found in Kensington Market and it, all sorts of great Argos stuff. So he's our runner-up and the winner... Devaris Daniels, who was just so stylish. He had a great look every game, especially on the road. This man traveled well. Anytime you see a picture of an Argo getting off a plane posted by social media, it's Devaris Daniels because, yeah, he looked like a million bucks everywhere he went. So congratulations, Devaris, on your Best Pre-Game Dresser Award. JB, before we sign off here, we got to give a a few thank yous. The Argonauts have been fantastic with us this season from Chris Belenovich and Hoagie and, you know, all the guys that we dealt with at the Toronto Argonauts. They were amazing with us this year. They gave us every opportunity to help us bring what we could to you from the Toronto Argonauts, from training camp all the way through the season to having us up in the press box to, you know, everything. They, They went out of their way to help us provide you with Toronto Argonauts coverage, Toronto Argonauts news. So we thank everybody with the Toronto Argonauts organization. And most importantly, our last Exes and Argos award goes to you, the listener. Thank you so much for uh, for tuning in. We, we really appreciate your comments, your engagement on Twitter, and we really thank you for listening. We'll be back in February with the free agent frenzy. Until then, for JB, this is Ben Grant saying happy holidays, happy new year, and may all your pre-snap reads be good ones. We'll see you.